1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from
0: HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And
1: I'm Holly Fry.
0: It's time for some Unearthed in July. So, as has been the case every year since we started doing this podcast. We have even more pins on our unearthed pin board on Pinterest than we did this time last year. So we have gone from having an unearthed episode to two of them, to two and one in July, and now we're going to have two in July. And we're breaking with tradition a little bit this time, and uh, since we have the luxury of doing two episodes, we're starting with a few things that happened at the very end of 2017, but for whatever reason, they just missed the cutoff for our 2017 Unearthed Episodes. We also have some things that institutions found in their own collections, along with some finds about books and letters and beads and some other things. And then in part two, we're going to get into a lot of other listener favorites, including the shipwrecks, the exhumations, the repatriations, and the stuff that is in theory, at least edible or potable, (laughs) uh, along with some other tidbits as well.
1: So starting off with that bit of unearthing from the end of 2017, Uh, Egyptologists at University College London announced that they have started working with new scanning techniques to read what's on waste papyrus that was used to make mummy cases. These cases were essentially decorative boxes, and they were made from scraps, sort of like when you tore up newspaper as a kid to do art projects making paper mache Or maybe you do it as an adult, but I associate that with a childhood craft. Uh, But in ancient Egypt, instead of old newspaper, it was things like to-do lists and tax information. And since these mummy cases were part of funeral rituals for wealthy and prestigious people, they were made out of scraps, but they were made to last.
0: The papyrus that was used to make these boxes is under a layer of plaster. So for a long time, if researchers wanted to try to read the papyrus, the only way they could do it was to remove the plaster, and that destroyed the box. But now researchers have built on this earlier discovery that the ink on the papyrus fluoresces under the right wavelengths of light. So now they're using all this non-invasive scanning technology and infrared filters to bring out all that fluorescence and to try to get a look at what the papyrus says without damaging the plaster on top of it. They're hopeful that all this information on the waste paper will help give them a better idea of what everyday life was like in ancient Egypt.
1: Doesn't that make you slightly terrified that someone will unearth and read your random notes at some point in the future? <laughs> be like, cat litter, milk. Uh, yeah. So moving on, death registries have always been a great source of information about ancient plagues. And it's pretty straightforward when you have a list of names and other vital information about people who died. It would be absurd not to look at it while researching a plague. But one team has taken this to a new level, analyzing the proteins in the paper itself to learn more about the environment in which these death registries were recorded.
0: This research was published in the journal Proteomics in November of 2017. It made more headlines after the first of the year. When preserving manuscripts, conservators sometimes use these little polymer disks that pull acids and other damaging substances out of the paper without damaging the paper itself. This team was using ethyl vinyl acetate discs and they realized that in addition to absorbing acids from the paper, they had also absorbed a lot of proteins.
1: These discs pulled samples of 600 different protein families out of a one-page notice and 11 pages of a death registry from Milano, Italy, which was kept from 1629 and 1630. These included peptide sequences connected to plague bacteria, to the foods that the scribes were eating as they worked, and to the animals, including rats and cats, that were
0: around them. This is like a slightly different version of what was the everyday life like of the people who were recording these death registries.
1: What rodents walked on your papers?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Did they give you the plague? In a previous Unearthed, we talked about researchers using software to trace the structure of fairy tales, and they discovered connections among these stories that went way back in history a lot farther than they thought they would. Researchers have now done something similar with traditional folk music. They've used computers to analyze 8,200 field recordings of traditional music from 137 countries.
1: Sub-Saharan Africa turned out to have exceptionally unique traditional music, with Botswana in particular having a huge number of outliers. Outliers are recordings that are unique to that specific place and not similar to recordings from anywhere else in the world. In Botswana, 61% of the recordings were outliers. Ivory Coast and Chad both had more than 50% outliers as well.
0: To move on yet again, on the Thursday before Christmas, Sandy Vasco, who's president of the Will County Historical Society in Illinois, found something unexpected in one of the many boxes of stuff that has been donated to the Historical Society over the years. This was a box with a cellophane lid, and it contained a flower that was reportedly from Abraham Lincoln's casket. Written under the bottom of the box was this, quote, flowers from the beer of President Lincoln while the remains were lying in state at the Capitol in Washington, D.C., April 20th, 1865, presented by General J.S. Todd to General I.M. Haney, and by him presented to Mrs. G. Elwood, née Pierce. J.S. Todd was
1: Mary Todd Lincoln's cousin. I.M. Haney was a friend of Lincoln's and James G. Elwood was a Civil War veteran and mayor of Joliet. So it makes sense that the flower could have passed down this chain of people until it was given to Mrs. Elwood.
0: Some of the news reporting of this um, this particular find involved, you're in your office alone the Thursday before Christmas You find this remarkable thing you didn't even know you had, and there's nobody you can tell about it because (laughs) you're the only one working because it's the Thursday before Christmas. One last one. We have talked about a lot of coin hoards on past unearths, and I finally put a moratorium on coin hoards unless there's something really unique about them because there is literally always a coin hoard. It's constantly... (laughs) finding piles of coins in the ground. However, a couple in China who was trying to build a house last October instead dug up a coin hoard that weighed 5.6 tons. That's a lot of coin hoard. Uh, This hoard includes about 300,000
1: copper coins from the Song Dynasty, roughly 1,000 years ago. And it's not immediately clear where they came from. There is a local story about a landlord burying his stash but it's just as likely that it belonged to a bank or a community group.
0: These coins were all turned over to the government under the Chinese Civil Relic Protection Law, although apparently the neighbors did start doing some of their own little excavations in their yards to see if maybe they got a coin hoard also.
1: (laughs) You get a coin hoard. I can't stop. Um, Now we have some news about the last known slave ship to make its way to the United States, which was called the Clotilda, in January, a shipwreck discovered a few miles north of Mobile, Alabama, made headlines as people speculated that that might be the Clotilda. The wreck was largely buried in mud, and it was partially unearthed by abnormally low tides that were brought on by severe weather. People have been looking for the Clotilda for years, so when this extremely low tide came along, teams went out to take advantage of it.
0: The Clotilda was reportedly burned and sunk in July of 1860 after bringing 100 enslaved Africans to the United States because the owners wanted to destroy the evidence of their crimes. At that point, it had not been legal to import enslaved people to the United States for more than 50 years. John Sledge, a senior historian with the Mobile Historical Commission, was quoted as saying, I'm quaking with excitement. This would be a story of world historical significance if this is the Clotilda.
1: Although the extreme low tide had made it possible to spot the wreckage, enough of the hull was still buried in mud that it was hard to tell exactly how large this ship was. A team of organizations, including the Alabama Historical Commission and the Slave Wrecks Project, did a more thorough investigation. And once they finished, they announced that this wreck was just much too big to be the Clotilda. And that news came out in March.
0: However, there's another Clotilda story that does pan out. In 1927, Zora Neale Hurston interviewed an enslaved man known as Kujo Lewis, whose African name was Kosola. He had been brought to the United States aboard the Clotilda and was the last known survivor of the transatlantic slave trade in the United States. She wrote a book based on these interviews, which was called Barracoon. But when she tried to get it published, it was rejected because publishers said that his dialect was too hard to understand. But in May of 2018, the book was finally published as Barracoon, the Story of the Last Black Cargo.
1: And this is one of those times that some of the coverage framed the book as something that was newly discovered. But the manuscript had been in the Howard University Library, and it was accessible to academics before this point. It is widely available to anyone who wants to read it now.
0: Yeah, this, is, this was not a book that no one knew existed and then suddenly we discovered that it existed. It was It's a book that has finally, after much delay, uh, being published with a lot of people noting, no, that dialect was not hard to understand, publishers in the 30s. Uh, we're going to take a quick break before we get into some other categories of unearthed things.
1: In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian.
0: Next up, we have a set of studies that confirm things that people already thought. First up, After examining a set of teeth that have been kept in Moscow since the end of World War II, a team of French pathologists have confirmed that, yes, as everyone thought, they are the teeth of Adolf Hitler, who really did die in that bunker on April 30th of
1: 1945. The pair of 4,000-year-old mummies, known as the two brothers, was found in 1907. And since then, there's been some debate about whether they were really brothers or not. According to the hieroglyphs on the sarcophagi, which described them as brothers, their names were Knum Noct and Noct Ankh. But as early 20th century researchers examined their remains, some of them had doubts. They thought that the bodies were just too dissimilar to be related to one another, regardless of what those hieroglyphics
0: said. Using DNA extracted from their teeth, researchers determined that, yes, they were related According to their paper published in the Journal of Archaeological Science reports in February, these two men had the same mother, but probably different fathers.
1: And this basically confirmed what was right there on the hieroglyphics the whole time. They named both brothers' mother as Knum Ah. Their fathers are not named and only a title is given, a Haitia prince. It just didn't say which Haitia prince. This is one
0: of those times that I was like, it. It was right there. Like
1: <laughs> this reminds me of like when when things have confirmed what Inuits have been saying forever, and they're like, we t- we told you over and over. Yeah, this we're about to have something-
0: <laughs> We're about to have something really similar. You will frequently hear that the indigenous Taino people of the Caribbean were wiped completely out by disease and violence after the arrival of Europeans. We have even said this on our podcast because it is all over the place. Here are some of the places I have read this, in the National Museum of St. Kitts, in a whole bunch of different textbooks, and in many, many articles about Caribbean history.
1: However, there has been a growing resistance to that idea from people in the Caribbean who say they are descended from the Taino people and that they are, in fact, still there. And now science is confirming this.
0: Researchers were able to use a tooth found in a cave in the Bahamas to establish a starting point for Taino DNA. This tooth's age is unclear, but it was from before Christopher Columbus arrived in the Americas. And based on this analysis, there are a lot of people living in the Caribbean today who have DNA in common with that tooth.
1: This confirms other studies that suggested that there were people of Taino ancestry in modern Caribbean populations but didn't have that starting point, that tooth, to confirm it. In the words of the lead author on the paper, which was published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, quote, It's a fascinating finding. Many history books will tell you that the indigenous population of the Caribbean was all but wiped out, but people who self-identify as Taino have always argued for continuity. Now we know they were right all along. There has been some form of genetic continuity in the Caribbean.
0: So we apologized for the non-zero number of times we messed that up on the podcast before. <laughs> it, at least two times that I can think of off the top of my head, possibly more.
1: Yeah, but we were going off the best information available at the time. We sure in would. T- in terms of, of science, even though there was some debate, now we know better. Yep. Also, this same study found no evidence that the people of the various Caribbean islands were genetically isolated. In other words, they were on islands, but their populations were not inbred. This suggests that the Taino traveled throughout the Caribbean and established networks among the islands. This
0: is another case of confirming what people were already saying. (laughs) This last one is more like science confirms question mark because it is the latest update on Amelia Earhart, but this time, contrary to normal, it's not from the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, or TIGER. It's from a University of Tennessee researcher who re-examined previous measurements of some bones that were found on Nakumaroro Island in the South Pacific. They compared these measurements to some that are extrapolated from a photograph of Amelia Earhart, that suggests that the bones are probably hers. So that contradicts earlier research on these bones done back in the 1940s, which concluded they belonged to a man. And this research was published in the journal Forensic Anthropology.
1: But the trick here is that the bones themselves have disappeared. So this is just a reanalysis of measurements of those bones, not of the bones themselves. Right.
0: And now we're going to move on to what's become one of my favorite things in Unearthed, which is things that institutions have found in their own collections. This always delights me. First up, the staff at Union College in Schenectady, New York, announced that they had found what they believe is a lock of George Washington's hair in their rare books collection. Here's the evidence for why they think it's George Washington's hair. Number one, it was in an envelope marked Washington's hair. Number two, the envelope was in an almanac that belonged to Philip Schuyler, who was Eliza Schuyler Hamilton's brother. Her father was also named Philip, and sometimes in reporting, this is described as her father's almanac. And there is also a note that says that this is a lock of hair belonging to George Washington that was passed down through the Schuyler family.
1: But the college doesn't want to perform DNA testing to confirm this find because of the likelihood that it would completely destroy the sample.
0: Yeah, they're like, this seems like enough evidence. <laughs> it's written there. That's fair. A whole note about it. That's Schuyler's. fair.
1: <laughs> if there's a, another technological advancement that makes it possible to maybe test it without any sort of damage, I'm sure they would be game. But you don't want to lose that on a gamble. Yeah.
0: Uh... Sydney University found a 2,500-year-old mummy in its own collection, in a coffin that was believed to be empty.
1: According to the hieroglyphics on the coffin, it was made for a priestess called Mernith Etes. But according to the team that's doing the work, coffins are frequently discovered not to contain the remains of the person that they were made for. This especially happens when unscrupulous antiquities dealers are trying to sell an empty coffin, but the customer really wants one that contains a mummy. And this may have happened with the coffin in question. The remains inside are described as heavily disturbed.
0: If you're wondering why that doesn't apply to the two brothers that we talked about earlier, like are those remains really the remains that it says on there? Like, This is a coffin that has changed hands sometimes and the remains inside have clearly been disturbed, which was not the case for those ones. Moving on, the University of Swansea discovered that it had a depiction of the pharaoh Hatshepsut in its own collection. The university has a department of Egyptology and professors can request specific artifacts for students to handle during their classes. In this case, Dr. Kenneth Griffin had made the request based on an old photograph of the artifact. But then he, once he got the actual pieces of limestone into his possession, he realized that they depicted Hatshepsut, which is one of the few known female pharaohs.
1: As is the case with a lot of Egyptian artifacts that have been in an institution's collection for decades, it is not clear exactly where this one came from. It was given to the university by Sir Henry Welcome in 1971, but beyond that, its life is a mystery.
0: This next one isn't exactly from a collection, but it's it's on a similar theme. The remains of Samuel Taylor Coleridge have been found under St. Michael's Highgate, which has long been home to a memorial plaque containing some text that was written by Coleridge himself. Coleridge had originally been buried in a crypt under the home where he died, But he and his family had been moved to the St. Michael's Crypt in 1961 in a space that had previously been a wine cellar before becoming part of the church's crypt.
1: But over time, people sort of lost track of exactly where Coleridge had been moved. His casket was found during an excavation, and now the church is planning to raise money to restore and protect the crypt and its contents.
0: Everybody involved with this was like, whoa, this is literally right underneath the monument up in the church. Like, it's directly under it, which is not what anybody was really expecting. They all knew he was down there somewhere. But, you know, as staff in the church moved on or passed away, like, it it just, it stopped being known exactly where. Uh, In 2016, researchers at the Anne Frank House physically checked in on her diary, something that they do every 10 years. It's kept in storage for preservation for the rest of the time, so every 10 years is like a more thorough examination of what they've got there. And they realized that two pages had been covered over with brown paper. In May, the Anne Frank House and two other Dutch cultural institutions announced that they had deciphered what was underneath this brown paper. And it included some kind of risque jokes and some discussion of sex education.
1: And this led to some discussion about how much work should really be done to figure out something from a teenager's diary that she clearly wanted to be hidden and where the line should be between the respect for a real person's privacy and the possibility of something of historical significance.
0: And tangentially related to this whole idea of finding things in your own collection, several announcements have come out of Monticello over the past several months as the former home of Thomas Jefferson tries to be more candid about the lives of enslaved people on the property. I know when I went to Monticello in probably 1987, was not something they talked about at all. They were more like, look at this amazing clock.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: In January, news broke about a kitchen at Monticello that was used by enslaved chef James Hemmings. When Jefferson was a minister to France, he took Hemmings with him to be trained as a chef there.
1: A lot of news reporting framed this as a discovery, something Monticello was surprised to find right there. But the staff already knew where this kitchen was. It just wasn't possible for archaeologists to get to it because visitor restrooms had been built there. But the bathrooms have since been demolished, which allowed for a dig that finally revealed the original floor.
0: This kitchen opened as a new public exhibit on June 16th. Also opening that day was a new digital exhibit called The Life of Sally Hemings. The Thomas Jefferson Foundation also announced that from here on out, it would drop all of the qualifiers when discussing whether or not Thomas Jefferson fathered children with Hemings, saying, quote, While there are some who disagree, the foundation's scholarly advisors and the larger community of academic historians who specialize in early American history have concurred for many years that the evidence is sufficiently strong to state that Thomas Jefferson fathered at least six children with Sally Hemings. That is the end of the quote.
1: Side note, uh, last year Monticello announced that it was excavating Heming's living quarters, which had also been turned into a bathroom.
0: We're gonna take a quick break before we move on to a different unearthed topic. We talked about the Voynich Manuscript not long ago in one of our Saturday Classic episodes, but we have yet another attempt to decode it. This time, it is the work of computing scientists at the University of Alberta. Professor Greg Kondrak and graduate student Bradley Hauer are using natural language processing to try to figure it out.
1: They used 400 languages from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to try to determine what language the manuscript is written in. They originally thought Arabic, but their work suggests the most likely candidate is Hebrew. Even that, though, is not definite. It's just statistically the most likely language.
0: And this is where it gets a little less precise. Their hypothesis is that this is a cipher that uses anagrams, but they did not have a Hebrew scholar to work with to check their findings. So they did what they could, and then they ran it through Google Translate, and they got results that seemed to be mostly readable sentences. Uh, Based on our own use of Google Translate, though, we can't really call anything solved based on Google Translate. Well, and
1: I wonder, has Google weighed in on this? Because we don't know how much their algorithm tries to make sense of things.
0: I, I, I did not find that they had when I was researching this. So that's like a whole other potential layer of like
1: of course it made sort of readable sentences it's trying desperately to do so
0: yeah there were also <laughs> lots of comments on uh, on various articles that were about this that were sort of like there are a lot of hebrew scholars <laughs> it seems like there should be one who would work with you on this yeah a lot of questions on that one
1: Researchers have been trying to track down the remains of the monastery where the Book of Deer was written. And the Book of Deer is a 10th century copy of the Gospels with notes about everyday life at the time written in the margins. It's the oldest known example of written Scottish Gaelic. And the monks in the monastery where the book was written eventually relocated about 1,000 years ago. And the location of the original monastery has been lost.
0: In January, they announced a breakthrough, a hearth and a thick layer of charcoal that they found in Aberdeenshire not far away from Old Deer. This find has been dated to between 1147 and 1260, so it's roughly in the right place, roughly in the right time. May have been something that lingered around for a while after the monks had moved on.
1: This is part of the Book of Deer Project, which is trying to make the text more accessible and has sponsored a series of excavations in the search for the monastery.
0: Conservators, with the Queen Anne's Revenge Project, which has blessed us with a lot of (laughs) unearthed pirate stuff, uh, found something really interesting in some wadding inside of a cannon. It was a book, or at least part of a book.
1: At first, it wasn't obvious at all what they were looking at. The first descriptions were just, quote, a mass of black textile. But as they worked with the mystery wadding, they started to pick out words and realized that they were looking at print material.
0: It took a while to figure out exactly what kind of print material, though, because they were only able to pick out a few snippets and isolated uh, chunks of the text. After a year of looking for clues, a conservator named Kimberly Kenyon found the word "Hilo." which was in one of these snippets of text from that wadding. Uh, She found it in a book called A Voyage to the South Sea Around the World. That book was written in 1712, and eventually they matched up more words and phrases from the canon wadding with words and phrases from this book.
1: And the book has its own connection to piracy. A voyage to the South Sea around the world recounts Edward Cook's time aboard the Duchess during a privateering voyage that lasted from 1708 to 1711. This expedition also rescued Alexander Selkirk, who is believed to be the inspiration for Robinson Crusoe from an uninhabited island.
0: It's not totally clear why this book was used as wadding in a cannon. There's some speculation about it, though. The pirates might have just really needed some wadding and they grabbed a book that was handy. Or somebody could have been mad that the voyage recounted in the book was led by Captain Woods Roger, who went on to fight piracy in the Caribbean. So it was more like, I don't like you and your anti piracy campaign, so I'm going to stuff this book about it down a cannon. <laughs> But that is just a theory, although it's fun to speculate. It is a fun speculation.
1: We are moving on to something that I always love, which is beads. Yep. Uh, Archaeologists have assumed that glassmaking was introduced into Africa through trade with Europe. But according to chemical analysis of a site in Nigeria, glassmaking there predates trade with Europe. And this particular site is home to the ancestral Yoruba people. And the find totally contradicts the prevailing idea that glass was introduced to Africa by traders from the Mediterranean and Europe.
0: Lots of glass beads and containers have been unearthed at digs from this area before. But the assumption had been that all of this glass was imported. Now, though, it appears as though there was a glass workshop there Researchers found more than 10,000 beads, and none of them had a chemical makeup that matched European glass. This was all local material, all made by local craftsmen and artisans. And the oldest samples date back to the 1100s, before this particular part of West Africa was trading with Europeans.
1: Archaeologists in India have discovered a bead workshop dating back to the ancient Indus Valley. We talked a little about the Indus Valley civilization in our episode on Mahenjo Daro, and this is a pre Harappan site, meaning that it dates back before the Indus Valley civilization matured.
0: This is from an excavation site called Kunal in northern India, and beads from the site date back to 3000 BCE to 2500 BCE, and they demonstrate that the artisans who were working at the site were highly skilled. But it's not just the age of the beads and the skill of the craftsmen that's so interesting. There's also evidence that the bead-makers traded with peoples as far away as Mesopotamia.
1: On that note... A common misconception about the past is that populations before the modern era were isolated. Like, Europe was all people we would think of as white, and Africa was all people we would think of as black, and so on. Until suddenly, around 1450 or so, people started moving around more. But that is just really not true. And next up, we
0: have a bunch of studies that are examples of that. Here's a really quick one to start off archaeologists in Tonsburg, Norway, have found an abstract chess piece made of antler in the remains of a 13th-century house. This piece is a knight, and while its design is abstract, it also seems to have been inspired by Islamic art. Researchers from the Max Planck Institute
1: for the Science of Human History have sequenced the DNA of several 15,000-year-old modern humans from Morocco. This is the oldest African DNA ever to be successfully analyzed.
0: The study looked at DNA from nine people. They were able to get mitochondrial DNA from seven of them and genome-wide information from five of them. And they discovered that these people's DNA was related to populations both from the Levant and from sub-Saharan Africa. This
1: suggests that there was a lot of interconnectivity going on in the world, with these people sharing DNA with populations from Western Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. It's a lot more mobility within these populations than researchers had thought was happening 15,000 years ago. And it suggests that travel between North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Western Asia was happening much earlier than was previously thought.
0: Researchers from the University of Helsinki have been trying to solve a mystery about the Neolithic corded ware culture, which spread across what's now Finland, Estonia, and Sweden around 2,900 to 2,300 BCE. One question has been whether the pottery that was part of this culture was carried from place to place through trade or whether the potters themselves spread out and carried their craft with them.
1: According to research published in the Journal of Archaeological Science, it seems to be the latter. The team analyzed pottery from 24 sites in three countries, which suggests that the pots themselves were being crafted in multiple locations.
0: Neolithic corded ware is also heavily associated with women, Women are more likely to have the pottery among their grave goods. Women seem to have been the ones who were performing and teaching the craft of making the pottery. So the evidence suggests that skilled female potters were moving all around the Baltic, maybe after getting married, and continuing their craft after moving. So it wasn't a matter of somebody loading up a pack animal with pottery and carrying it around, or putting pottery on a boat and carrying it around. People were moving to a new place where they lived permanently and they were making their pottery once they got there.
1: And we are going to have a whole lot more unearthed next time, including favorite topics like edibles and potables and everybody's most delightful topic, exhumations. Exhumation time coming next. (laughs) Tracy, do you have listener mail?
0: I do have a really quick listener mail. It's from Eleanor. And Eleanor says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I love the show and recently listened to your episode about evacuating children. It reminded me of a memorial that I pass every day on my commute at Liverpool Street Station in London. The small memorial is for the children of the Kinder Transport. It's off to the side of the main hall in the station and is not really noticed by many people who are rushing past it. I've attached some pictures. Thank you for your awesome podcast that makes my commute on the tube so much better. Best wishes, Eleanor. Eleanor sent three um, three pictures of this memorial that is really moving to look at. It's got sculptures of two children with a suitcase behind them, and the look on their face is just so moving. These were the children that were uh, evacuated out of Nazi Germany and Nazi-occupied territories into Britain um, leading up to World War II. Anyway, I did not know that this existed uh, as a monument. Thank you so much for sending this and for sending the pictures. I will see if I can find some pictures online and and link to them from the show notes for today's episode. If you would like to send us a note, we're a history podcast at howstuffworks.com. And then we're on social media at Missed in History. That is our Facebook and our Pinterest and our Instagram and our Twitter. You can come to our website, which is Myst where you will find the show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have worked on together and an archive of all of the episodes ever. You can also subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, wherever else you get your podcasts.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Zumo Play.